Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. So I think people usually assume that global companies failed in China because of government intervention. It either inhibited foreign companies or favored zero domestic arrivals. So my co-author and I conducted more than 100 interviews with executives and global companies. And we found that in most cases, that assumption is wrong. Lily Song is a global fellow at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's a co-author with Professor Carl Ulrich of Winning in China, Eight Stories of Success and Failure in the World's Largest Economy. She's also a contributor to Harvard Business Review and writes about international business. A former journalist and editor, she has interviewed world leaders from prime ministers to Fortune 500 company CEOs. In addition to journalism, she had stints at startups and multinational corporations as a marketer in both the United States and China. Lele was a visiting scholar at the University of California, Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. She holds an MPA degree from the University of Pennsylvania. In this podcast, she shares several counterintuitive lessons from the successes and failures of companies like Amazon, Norwegian Cruise Lines, and Intel as they attempted to enter the China market. Three necessary conditions that we must have in place to have a good chance of being successful in China, and five key managerial decisions each company should be thinking about if they do want to succeed. Ladies and gentlemen, Lili Song. Lila, thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Kaihan. I'm excited to be here. Great. So I'm very excited to get into your work and your experience. There are a couple questions that I like to open up with with all of our guests. I'm going to start with those two. The first one, just for us to get to know you a little bit more personally before we get to know you professionally, could you complete this sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. If you really know me, you know I want to be a comedian. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, what got you interested in comedy? Yeah. So I was born in a family where both my parents don't tell jokes. They don't even understand the jokes. <laughs> so growing up, when I tried to tell them a joke, my father would look at me puzzled. And my mom would say something like, hey, I think you say some words wrong. He's such a poorly educated kid. Why don't you go and read some more books? Oh my gosh. You know, they are typical Chinese parents. But because of that, growing up, I found myself always drawn to people who have a great sense of humor. I want to be friends with them. I want to be around them. But the thing is, funny people are rare, right? You don't really always find them. So one day I just told myself, you know, why don't I be funny and bring happiness to myself and others? So starting from last year, I started to do stand-up. Cool. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was really hard. It's really hard to make people laugh, but I did it. Did you take a class or did you just get on stage? How did you approach it? I just get on stage. I didn't take any wow. classes. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I think we do need laughter, right? Especially in the business world, there is a severe lack of humor. So that's why when I don't do stand-up, I like to draw funny cartoons. 
and make funny videos based on what's going on in the business world. For example, I do cartoons on why Amazon field in China. For sure. I made a video on why LinkedIn doesn't work in China. Really? So I really enjoy doing this. Oh, where can we find those cartoons? It's all on my personal website, lilasong.com. Excellent. All right. I'm going to check it out. Before we get into your other work, there's a second question that I ask all participants in this podcast, and I never get the same answer. What is your definition of strategy? Strategy is a word that makes you sound very smart. (laughs) (laughs) I think people in the corporate world use that a lot. Well, you say that often, that actually makes you sound much more important than you actually are. Well, that's a joke. No, it's it's true. It's true. It's true. I think you have a strategy for anything and it does make it sound important. You know, your Netflix selection strategy (laughs) or whatever it is, you can put strategy in front of it. Well, I think a strategy for me is very simple. It's just a top-level plan for entering a market and achieving sustainable success. Awesome. Great. And we're going to get into your findings on strategies that are successful and not successful for multinationals entering China. But just give us a little bit of background. You started your career as a journalist, as I understand. What got you interested in what you do now? Yeah, I started my career as a journalist in China covering business and politics. My job was to understand company strategies and write about them. But what really got me interested in strategy was when I was working for this U.S. company in Shanghai. I noticed that during in that period, there are a lot of global companies with best resources struggled or even failed in China. But only a few years back, there were role models for Chinese domestic companies. They were growing fast, making incredible profits. So what happened? I was looking for books to explain this, but unfortunately and surprisingly, there was none. So that's why I decided to do it by myself to investigate and to find out what wrong with your China strategy. So so that was the reason I wrote my book, When in China. Now, originally, your first thought on the book, as I understand it, was to write about failures of technology companies entering in China. And you expanded the scope of the book. Tell us about why you decided to expand the scope of the book. Actually, it was because of my co-author, Professor Carol Ulrich from Warden. He suggested that we should also include companies that have already succeeded in China. So I agreed. And so you studied, as I recall, you looked at like 200 different companies and narrowed them down and chose a few cases that are quite diverse. They're not U.S. companies only entering China. They are Indian and from other regions. Can you just give us an example of how competing in China is different than in other markets? Why the playbook maybe has to be different when thinking about entering China versus other regions? Yes, I can give an example. You know, the conventional wisdom is that when you go to a foreign market, you're supposed to localize your offerings to meet local tech and preferences, right? So that was exactly Norwegian coastline did when it entered the Chinese market. So it adopted many Chinese characteristics on its cruise ship, like Chinese interior design, Chinese restaurants, Chinese tea houses, and Chinese games like mahjong sets, or even Taiji Park on its deck. But what it did actually backfired. It turns out that Westerners was something that Chinese consumers valued in that specific case. 
So when they got on a cruise ship, they expected a exotic Western experience as opposed to the Chinese experience. For instance, they really liked the British afternoon tea offered by a competing cruise company where waiters served tea and cookies while wearing white gloves. So that's a very typical Western style that they were looking for. So the company ended up spending $50 million to remove all the Chinese elements from its ship and left the Chinese market completely. Of course, there were a lot of factors, but one of them was their localization effort. Fascinating. Do you think that that depends on the sector, the appeal of localization versus non-localization? I think it really depends. You have to analyze the situation on a case by case. Right. Yeah, you can't just assume that localization is a requisite or preferred. What about an example of a company that you looked at that succeeded? And what could we learn from them? Like Sequoia. Uh-huh. Sequoia Capital. Sequoia. Intel. Yeah. Oh, Intel as well. Yeah. Okay. They're both very successful companies in China. Intel actually collects one quarter of its revenue from the Chinese market. That's about $20 billion. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And what is the key lesson from the Intel example? I think one of their strategies was to align their expansion plan with China's national priorities. So that's why they always got preferential treatment from the government and created a favorable operating environment for itself. So that was very smart. And how did they project that or how did they communicate that to the market? I think it's very clear. So Chinese government, they always lay out maybe like five-year plan. You just research as and find out where that you can align that plan. So it's very obvious. But few people, a few, few companies do that. So Intel actually did that very well. Yeah. And as I understand, they really invested heavily, right? They showed a strong commitment to China. And what about Sequoia? What did Sequoia do, right? Sequoia, I think one of the main strategies was to set up a decentralized governor structure in China. So allowing the China unit to make their own decisions without intervention from the headquarters. So that was a strategy very difficult to implement. So they did it. And also they found a very awesome local leader. Ah, and who was that local leader? Neil Shen. Uh-huh. So he was on Forbes Madoff list three years in a row. Great. I know that you also looked at Amazon's entry, and so I want to learn about that. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about a non-U.S. company, because you studied non-U.S. companies as well. What would be an example of a non-U.S. company that you studied? One of them is Imobi, which is an Indian startup. And, you know, the internet industry is notoriously difficult for foreign companies to break into. But Imobi did it. And I think some reasons are, for example, they have advanced technology at the beginning, and they also found this strong local leader. They really give them sufficient autonomy to make it run as a local startup. So that was one of the reasons they succeeded in China. Ah, okay. So there's a common thread there with Sequoia as well. Right. That they both have strong local leaders. I got it. Do you mind talking a little bit about what your findings were with Amazon as well? And for those people listening that aren't familiar, as I wasn't until preparing for this, about Amazon's initial strategy and attempts in China, just give us the context and what Amazon attempted to do. Yeah, I think Amazon, given its tremendous success in its own market and other international markets, it just assumes that it could transfer its competitive advantage to China. But unfortunately, that didn't work out. So, you know, Amazon's flyway. It's famous business model, so I don't want to explain it here. But I just want to say the key components of Amazon's flywheel include its vast selection of goods, vast delivery, and competitive pricing. 
But unfortunately, in China, Amazon's selection was much narrower than its competitors. Pricing was not competitive as JD or Alibaba because both of them launched price wars to trying to kick Amazon out of the Chinese market and with the support from deep-pocketed venture capitalists. JD.com also built its amazing supply system that outperformed Amazon. So that's why in China, Amazon didn't have any competitive advantage. So they had to leave China. That's what I've understood. I've only been to China, done a little bit of work in China, so I'm in no way an expert. But the expectation of speed, especially for like competitors to Amazon. I mean, we over here, I ordered something today from Amazon. It's going to come tonight. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. But in China, you really have to be fast to be competitive. Yeah, that's normal. The speed is normal. Fast speed is normal. You know, just think about the Chinese market. You know, it operates at fast speed. Sometimes even feels like 10 times the speed of a mature economy. So under that environment, competitors can emerge and become major threats almost overnight and new consumption habits can form suddenly. So it's really, really difficult to operate in an environment like that, especially for global companies because of their governance structure. It makes it difficult for them to keep up with that speed. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. You've touched on a number of say, unique strategic choices or priorities that one needs to make when thinking about entering China from outside China. But what do you find that people most get wrong? Or maybe what was surprising to you or an assumption that we have about, hey, this is how it should work because it works other places, but particularly in the China context, that doesn't work. What's surprising? So I think people usually assume that global companies failed in China because of government intervention. It either inhibited foreign companies or favored zero domestic rivals. So my co-author and I conducted more than 100 interviews with executives and global companies. And we found that in most cases, that assumption is wrong. Of course, I think Chinese government still plays an outsized role in guiding its economy. And sometimes its regulations and the policies can change suddenly without much warning. So that definitely brings significant challenges to global companies. But in our book, we actually talked about uh, government's intervention in some cases. But overall, I think it still came down to companies' own strategies. Hmm, okay. So then you conclude your book with speaking of the strategies, and it really is one message that I'm getting from you is that your success is determined on some key decisions you make in your strategy and entering China. You have a really interesting set of decisions to make. Do you mind sharing those with us? You have five key managerial decisions. Yes, we have a framework for entering the Chinese market to succeed in China. You have to meet three necessary conditions and competently make five managerial decisions. So these three necessary conditions are demand, access to the market, and competitive advantage. So first of all, your product or service must meet a local demand. One characteristic of the Chinese market is consumers are open-minded. They always want to try new products and new services. So that actually provides an opportunity for global companies to create demand for their offerings. So in our book, we actually talk about some companies that have done it successfully. And secondly, access to market, you are allowed to operate in China legally. So, you know, in China, there are some categories that are close to foreign companies and some require a Chinese partner. So you have to pick the right arena to compete. 
That's why it is competitive advantage. So just bear in mind, as I mentioned before, the competitive advantage is that works in your home market or other international markets may not work in China. So in our book, we also talk about what to do when you can't transfer your competitive advantage or you lose it. Yeah, I can see people myopically assuming that the core competitive advantage that has given them success in the U.S. and probably other more similar markets, it's almost without thinking that you operate under the assumption that that's going to transfer, translate. Excellent. What are some of those five key managerial decisions that we should be thinking about? The five managerial decisions include commitment, governor structure, leadership, strategy, and product. So that means you need to have sufficient commitment to the Chinese market, a good governor structure to balance the power dynamic between the headquarters and its channel unit, and strong local leadership, an excellent strategy, and achieve product market fit. Fascinating. Again, there's so many other implications here and things to explore, but we're reaching the top of our time with you. Could you share with us what are you working on now and where can people continue to learn from you? My work used to only focus on China, how to enter the Chinese market and how to succeed there. But I found that the lessons and the principles of drawing from the Chinese market can also be applied to other markets as well. So I have expanded my research to include other international markets to see how those principles work there. Great. Any particular markets that you're looking at? Well, maybe Africa and South America. And what's the best way for us to stay connected with you? You mentioned your website. Is there anywhere else that we can find you and continue to learn from you? In my LinkedIn. LinkedIn? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending some time to share your work with us. It's really fascinating and particularly relevant now in this moment where we are looking at new forms of globalization or alternatives of globalization. Very timely and very important. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.